This episode of New Politics was recorded on October 27, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the continuing corruption in New South Wales politics, Kevin Rudd ramps up his attacks on the Murdoch Empire, and Scott Morrison goes for a much easier target, an all-out attack on Australia Post. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I notes have been shredded by the New South Wales government. New South Wales has always been the centre of political corruption in Australia. It started off with the Rum Corps that arrived with the First Fleet. It was the home of Thomas Lay, the only swindler and murderer to sit in a parliament. There's been widespread corruption within the New South Wales Police Force, the corrupt era of Robert Askin during the 1970s, Nick Greiner in the 1990s was made to resign after an ICAC investigation. Then there was the corrupt era of Eddie O'B that came to an end in 2011, and we thought that that might have been the end of it for a while. But scratch the surface just a little bit and there's always something more to find. Barry O'Farrell had to resign over an undeclared bottle of red wine and now there's a new round of allegations made against the current Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, about secret deals, covering up corruption and shredding documents to remove a paper trail for $250 million worth of community grants in Liberal-held seats. It seems like it's just all a bit too difficult for New South Wales to break its addiction to corruption. It was the Griner government with the the great Attorney General, John Dowd, and I say that unironically, who set up ICAC to break what they saw as corruption. Now, Griner, I think, and if Nick's listening, he can correct me, uh, saw it as a way of getting rid of some Labor people who I think he believed were genuinely corrupt. And of course, ICAC found that he had acted corruptly, later overturned by the High Court on the idea that, well, he may have been corrupt, but he didn't realise he was being corrupt type thing. And he argued himself that this was the type of thing that Bob Menzies did all the time. And what he'd done, of course, was appoint Terry Metherill to uh, head up the Environment Protection Authority of New South Wales, a a new department. Uh, Metherill had been a Liberal minister, but had resigned over a point of principle and was taking a seat. uh, I think it was a seat of Manly. And Griner used it as a as a way to get Terry Metherill out of the seat, put back in a safe Liberal candidate, get that extra vote in Parliament that was guaranteed, and uh, help set up the new department. Now, in fairness, Terry Metherill was a very good candidate for the head, but it shows how deep corruptions in New South Wales runs when Nick Griner couldn't see that this was a essentially corrupt act. Proper processes weren't followed. It was an obvious attempt to remove a a problem for the government. The other thing I wanted to point out is the corruption of Axkin, which was terrible and blatant. The casino run by Perscalia, for example, was known by everybody in Sydney at the time. Askin and the commissioner claimed that they had no evidence of illegal casinos, but if they found it, they would certainly close it down. And, you know, they visited it nearly nightly, only in New South Wales, seriously. (laughs) But the difference here is that 
Askin didn't touch public money, all the bribe money he received, and it seemed he got bribe money. He claimed that he was just a good gambler and a good investor on the stock market and and used his salary wisely. After his death, they audited him, and, and there was a string of income that they couldn't trace. And the assumption is that it was some kind of bribery, brown paper bags, etc., even Askin, as corrupt and as awful and jailable as it was, there wasn't a lot of public money being misused. The corruption moves around the time of Greiner, and I'm not blaming Nick Greiner for this. I think you can trace it back to Neville Wren in many cases. Moves from being brown paper bags, dark alleys, secret meetings, to legislated and inverted commas, properly audited payments to consultants who happened to be elected members of parliament, etc. And I think this is what we haven't quite gathered yet. Berejiklian has been presented as a clean skin within the media. She's been the Premier since early 2017. But we all know that politics in Australia is quite a dirty business. The nature of politics is quite dirty. To get things done, you necessarily have to favour mates or pay a little bit of extra money over the mark to get a building uh, produced or a library completed or whatever the case might be. But it just seems to be getting a little bit worse. And the key issue for corruption in New South Wales is don't get caught. Daryl Maguire, he's another person that's in politics or was in politics for all the wrong reasons. He was He's former member for Wagga Wagga, who was uh, sacked in 2018. It just seems like it's all too easy for members of parliament to engage in corruption. That's at the state level and the, and the federal level. We have an ICAC in New South Wales to look at corruption after it's actually happened. But what could be done to deter it before it actually occurs? Should there be tougher penalties or more oversight of what parliamentarians get up to? The system we use is fragile, as we've seen. If you stand up against it, if you're in a position of power, there will be no consequences. Gladys Berejiklian in the past would have resigned after that ICAC. And if she'd been really savvy, she'd have resigned beforehand. She must have had a hint of what was coming. I think Barry O'Farrell, Liberal Party in New South Wales at least, or at least elements of the Liberal Party, I don't want to tar the honest members, if there are any, with the brush of corruption. And that goes for both sides of politics and all, all sides of politics. I, I want to acknowledge and appreciate the honest members, even if I don't know who all of them are. I think when Barry O'Farrell resigned over that bottle of wine, I think there was a, an unspoken covenant that this would never happen again. I've been saying for years that Gladys is overseeing corruption, even if she's not personally corrupt. And I also think, too, that Gladys is seen as honest because she hasn't personally profited. She hasn't received the money. There's no evidence of that. She hasn't received extra money apart from her salary without the understanding that to let it happen is just as corrupt. She mightn't have robbed the bank, but she drove the getaway car or she at least loaned the getaway car, put petrol in it and said, don't tell me what you're going to do with it, knowing she's given it to a gang of bank robbers. There's a level of where our public servants, and I don't mean the professional public servants, I mean our elected officials, don't know what corruption is, I think. 
Well, maybe that's one of the key issues, that there isn't a clear definition of what corruption is. You and I might sit down and think, well, this is clearly corrupt. We understand what corruption or corrupt behaviour is, but there doesn't seem to be a clear definition of that. And it reminds me of what happened with the impeachment hearing for US President Bill Clinton in, back in 1998, where he actually asked us to define the word is. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. If the if he if is means is and never has been, that is not a, that's one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. So if we're struggling to define the word is and what that actually means, we're going to have quite a few difficulties defining what the word corruption actually means. But it seems like in 2020, we've got a different version of Bill Clinton's definition. It's almost like we have to find out what is meant by the word that. Here's a recording from the ICAC hearings. Okay, that sounds fun. Yeah, I've been doing my books, my accounts. Yep. Counting, counting my tax refund. <laughs> Good. That's excellent. Given the size of it, it'll take you all week to count it all. It's true. And the good news is, William, William tells me we've done our deal. So hopefully that's about half of all that gone now. That's good. Mm. I don't need to know about that bit. No, you don't. Yeah. You do not. So, anyway, it's all good news, so we're moving ahead. Okay, good. There's a recording of the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, saying, we don't need to know about that. What is meant by that? Did she, what did she know about Delroy Maguire's dealings? There's a wide range of corrupt issues going on here and corrupt practices, the arrangements that he was dealing with or doing, the relationship itself between Gladys Berejiklian and Maguire. It's something that she did need to report or let people know about, at least her colleagues or someone. And there's also a lot of contradictions there. She, Gladys Berejiklian claims that the relationship between her and Maguire was insignificant, but she was going to marry him as well. There's just a lot of things within this situation that just simply don't add up. I get and I understand when you're a public figure, you may not want all of your private life splashed out. And I think where possible, that should be acknowledged. We do need to know some things we do need to know who you're married to. Anything that impinges on public life, we need to know. And that includes serious relationships. So it's not about the, the salacious details. It is about, however, particularly when Daryl Maguire can use the Premier's name as a business advantage to make government deals. This is where it becomes suddenly everybody's business. So it is one issue for parliamentarians to completely overlook the corruption that they're committing, but the media are overlooking it. That's another issue. And the, the media went into a massive spin cycle and so much of the media was obsessed and focused on this idea of the dud boyfriend or Gladys is bad at love, it's every woman's experience. It was actually quite sickening. She actually went on to quite a few media outlets. She went on to Kiss FM with Cole Sandilands and Jackie O. That's right. Yeah. The Premier of New South Wales had a tough week last week. And really, uh, everything I read, she actually went up 
in my opinion, polls. I thought, wow, <laughs> look at this. Well, this is what we want. Well, it certainly showed who were the Gladys supporters out there. And uh, I don't know if Gladys is aware. A huge amount of support for you. Uh, and she joins us now. Hi, Gladys. Good morning, How Premier. You? How are Hi, you? Hi, guys. I'm okay. Oh, what okay. a week, eh? Oh, it has been a horrible yeah. week, hasn't it? I oh. know from you being in here on many, many occasions and having uh, gotten to know you over the years, I know how embarrassed you would have been over this and to have to front the media every day and hold your head up high must have been incredibly difficult. Oh, it sure was. And I don't wish that upon anybody. Um, I guess when you have big traumas or big things that go wrong in your life, you don't have to tell the whole world, which is what I had to do. And that was my responsibility because people needed to know from me um, what happened. And um, it was a really, really hard week. But I just feel um, very supported and um, I actually am starting to feel even stronger. So um, well, I really appreciate the support. They do, they do make you stronger and you yeah. know, to, to give people an idea of how private you are, n- not even your family knew no, about this. No, I didn't. No, because I thought to myself if it was if I thought it was of significance you know, and it was going to go somewhere definitely, I would have definitely, but I didn't want to introduce someone and then not have it work because that would disappoint people because um, and so, I, you know, for that reason, and I'm also a very private person, so very, I, I, yeah. I kept it to myself. <laughs> I I don't think we need to worry about the shortage of masks in New South Wales. It's a shortage of vomit bags. I'm very fortunate to know a lot of very impressive women, and I'm not sure that any of them would fall on the, I had a dud boyfriend and I was blinded by love. Does that not put us back to pre-first wave feminism? You know, from the 1890s, the suffragette movement. It came across like a 19th century romance potboiler. This bad man did me wrong and we've all been there, haven't we, girls? And I firstly thought of Kerry Chikorovsky, who'd been leader of the Liberal Party. And I don't think Kerry would ever try that. Could you imagine Angela Merkel of Germany saying, oh, yes, I made a bad mistake, but it was because I'd met a bad man. He'd done me wrong and broke my heart. Or Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) I'm no fan of Margaret Thatcher, but let's be fair. Hillary Clinton. And Hillary probably could (laughs) use that to an extent. So it's been an absolute whitewashing by the media. So two weeks after the event, no one is talking about it, but we'll keep persisting with it. And it's almost like it just never, never happened. The corruption has been totally bypassed. You know, there'd be a different rule if it was a Labor Party member. I guess the other factor is that the ICAC, it doesn't take any notice of whether Gladys was in love or or whether she had a dud boyfriend or bad relationship. That's not their concern. They don't care about what Kyle Sandylands and Jackie O have to say about Gladys Berejiklian and how popular she is and how fantastic she is. They're going to look at whatever the evidence is that's placed in front of them. The other point is because the ICAC is not a court of law, it can only make recommendations, but it can't actually make any prosecutions at all. But it gets back to what sort of media pressure is placed on the Premier and whatever the adverse findings that may come out of the ICAC, that's not going to influence Gladys Berejiklian's decision whether she resigns or not. It's going to be the sort of media pressure that is placed upon her and whether there's enough pressure placed on her by the electorate as well. That's what's going to make her resign from her position. I noticed the Herald published an Ipsos poll in which their analysis was that the public has forgiven Gladys. On Twitter, the Herald got is what's called a ratio. And the ratio is where you get more comments on the tweet than retweets or likes. 
And probably 93 to 95% of the comments were basically highly critical of Gladys and expressed that there was no forgiveness for her. Now, Twitter's a bit of a, a, a bubble. Not quite sure that it skews left, but it certainly, I don't think it represents the whole of the public. But I think the anger that people feel, which is expressed on social media, is palpable. A lot of people who had defended Gladys, who weren't necessarily liberal voters, are finished with her. Some liberal voters are distressed because she was seen as honest. Uh, she was seen as a step up from Mike Baird, from serious analysts. Um, Mike Baird, of course, was very popular, but got out before any of this type of scandal hit. Gladys has held on. And of course, the other thing we've got to remember, all politicians believe that they belong there. All politicians have an ego. Even the humble ones think that they're the ones who, who have to be there. I don't think it's anywhere near over yet. This is probably the one rule of politics that we can count on. The longer she holds on, the more damage she'll cause. On a slightly different matter, but it's fully related here, our school PNC committee received a $5,000 community grant. That's fantastic news. But every single item has to be accounted for. Every single receipt has to be kept. I've got a bookcase of receipts taking up my space in the office. And that, you know, I'd like to get rid of these receipts, but I can't. Now, that's for a community grant with $5,000. There's $250 million in the stronger community grants. Now, these were just provided just before the 2019 election, uh, the New South Wales election, that is. 95% of those grants went to coalition-held seats. All the documents relating to the decisions that were made in allocating that $250 million had been shredded and all the electronic files have been deleted. How can we have a situation where a community grant of $5,000 needs to keep the receipts for up to five years, but $250 million in community grants provided by the government doesn't have to have any documentation at all? And there it is, you know, and I bet that this isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, we know it's not. It shows that a so-called honest premier would do this because it gives, maybe not, it gives an advantage to the electorates that voted for her or for her government. Don't forget, there's only a one-seat majority in New South Wales, technically. When uh, the Nationals tried that ridiculous walkout while trying to keep their cabinet seats, completely not understanding how the Westminster system works. Had they actually worked on principle, she'd have been down 12 seats. And it's funny too, the only time you ever see Gladys fire up about anything is when it directly affects her or her interests. You know, there's that time where the Newcastle Herald asked her something and she sort of fumed at them saying, oh, it's typical of the Newcastle Herald. The media is supposed to criticise you. Sometimes it's unfair, sometimes it's not justified. But if the media is not doing that, then there's no point in having a media. It's a weird situation we're in that the media hasn't picked up really. They did for three or four days, but they've sort of dropped it without explanation. Now, the other thing I've noticed is that these scandals tend to last for three weeks. And in the second week, and I'm thinking back to Barnaby Joyce, which is not a dissimilar scandal, really, in that it wasn't really about Barnaby Joyce and Vicky Campion. It was about what Barnaby did to cover it up and what he did while he was covering up. Barnaby held on for about three weeks 
we're only in the second week of this. And it ebbed and flowed too. It wasn't 21 days of constant. There was a few days, then a drop-off, then a few days, then a drop-off, then a few days. And I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen with Gladys. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the Royal Commission into Rupert Murdoch and his media empire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, 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 the ring of fire. Like ours meet I fell for you like a child Oh, but the fire went wild I fell in He's been out of politics since 2013, but Kevin Rudd has launched a petition to hold a Royal Commission into Australia's media. The petition is known as a Royal Commission to ensure a strong, diverse Australian news media, but we all know that his main target is News Corporation and Rupert Murdoch, whose ownership controls at least 65% of the media landscape in Australia, and with Seven West and Nine News now trying to mimic News Corporation and the infiltration of the ABC by key news-limited journalists and staff, Murdoch's influence over the Australian media is, in reality, closer to 100%. A Liberal government is never going to support a petition that scrutinises its main supporter and benefactor, and if anything ever arises from this petition, it's likely to come from the Labor Party whenever it returns to government. But as we saw with the Leveson inquiry in the UK, and that was an inquiry that questioned whether Rupert Murdoch was a fit and proper person to hold a media licence, and uncovered great details about phone tapping and other illegal activities, Murdoch is just too powerful to attack. And we've said this many times in our previous episodes, but Murdoch is someone that should be spending time in jail for his many corrupt and illegal activities. Kevin Rudd once described himself as a determined bastard, and if there is one person to force this Royal Commission, he would be the one. But it's just not going to happen for a long, long time. I think... Kevin Rudd understands that it's a symbolic gesture. I found it interesting Malcolm Turnbull, who was happy to use Murdoch's support when he has it, joined in. A lot of ex-News Corp journalists have joined in, apparently. A lot of other journalists, obviously, have joined in. The petition has galvanised the public. As of the time of recording, 393,633 people have signed it. Most petitions, you know, a good one will get seven or 8,000 signatures. A really good one might get 20,000. A lot fall very short. There's also no legislation to determine that a petition must have a minimum number to be heard. If it was in the government's interest, a petition with 10 signatures could be tabled while this one can be ignored. They're hoping to get half a million by the end of the month. But the point is, is that we're looking at one or 2% of the voting public, which is a large number. I think Victoria in particular has seen the damage the media can do. 
particularly a concentrated, monopolised or essentially monopolised media. Queensland has seen it as well. And I think even Western Australia. But yeah, that the number is astounding. Nearly 400,000 people feeling strong enough to sign a petition. The servers melted down on the first day. Uh, a lot of people couldn't sign. And of course, the conspiracy theory went round. But I think, to be fair, it was that so many people just went on and it crashed the system. So that is quite a few signatures to receive for a petition. The other factor to take into account that there's no legal requirement for any of these petitions to be granted. There's about five or six current petitions on the parliamentary website at the moment, but there's no requirement for anything to happen after this. It gets down to whether the government decides whether there should be a royal commission into this or not. And I can't see a Liberal government doing this at all. The other factor to take into account is that the value of royal commissions has diminished ever since Tony Abbott became Prime Minister in 2013. He announced all of those politicised commissions at the drop of a hat. Ultimately, they revealed nothing at all. And there is that old adage that you don't call on a royal commission unless you know all the answers to it first. A Royal Commission into Media Diversity, essentially, which would be a commission into Rupert Murdoch, that, of course, would be a very, very political and politicised Royal Commission, but I think there would be quite a valuable one as well. How differently would the... If we take George Pell, who got massive protection, parts of the media, not all of them, but a lot of the Murdoch media, basically undermined the court's findings... Victoria has flattened a major pandemic in six or eight weeks. Nowhere else in the world has been able to do this. And they did it by themselves with the media against them and the federal government against them. This is, you know, this is extraordinary. How differently and how much easier would it have been if you didn't have a monopolised media that uses itself as a political weapon, a monopolised, weaponised media and it takes us back to Gladys. Had Anna Palaszczuk in Queensland done this, she'd have been hounded out of office by now, and the Queensland election would have been lost. Of course, Anna hasn't done this. It's Gladys in New South Wales. It's not good enough. Well, the lack of media diversity is a serious problem in Australia, but there's still many people that are still, they're receiving the news from other outlets as well, other independent media, and they're forming their political opinions in other ways. You mentioned before the situation in Queensland where Rupert Murdoch and News Corporation own virtually 100% of the media outlets, but that doesn't translate into 100% of the two-party preferred vote in Queensland. Like, it's still roughly 50-50. So it's not necessarily a case where the media ownership directly translates into political support for conservative parties. It does have an influence, but we're not sure exactly how much it actually has. What's not commonly understood about Queensland, and all the Queensland listeners are you know, holding their breath thinking, oh God, what's he going to say? But Queensland is a Labor state. It's had more Labor governments than national and Liberal governments. The Bjorki-Peterson years were outliers. It allows in Queensland other outliers such as Clive Palmer to get a foothold uh, where in a normal media atmosphere, Clive Palmer would get very little. He certainly wouldn't be taken very seriously at all. The other thing too, Campbell Newman lasts one term and gets wiped completely out in that term. The influence of media is, I think, much more insidious the whole Bill Shorten, people saying, I just don't like him, and then not being able to tell you why they didn't like him, even though Bill 
Bill, Bill Shorten did nothing wrong in his uh, election campaign, came across very well. People still didn't like him because of the subtle, the headlines that you walk past the news agents and scroll along the bottom of your screen. This has an effect. How much of an effect? Abraham Lincoln, you can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And I think that's something that's still true today. There's also a confluence of issues coming up as well. So we're speaking in late October. By the time we do our next podcast, it's going to be a US election as well. Donald Trump is more than likely to lose the election, but we're not going to predict anything because I've seriously got the last few elections wrong, so I'm not going to say anything about that. There's a number of issues that will arise if Donald Trump does lose the, the next election. And also, if we look at the death of Rupert Murdoch, by the time an inquiry arrives, he might, if he's still alive, he might be 92 or 93 years old. There's a lot of changes that will happen both within the news corporation and also within American politics that might end up changing the entire dynamics of the media in Australia as well. Eventually, maybe two or three years' time, by the time, if, or if Labor does indeed get back into government at that time, there might not be a need for a Royal Commission. That's it. Uh, the, the general rule has been the grandfather sets it up and makes it successful, the son makes it mega successful, and the children disperse it and lose it. Now, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but if you look at the great American fortunes, Carnegie, uh, Hearst, Morgan, for example, that's essentially what happened. It seems to have happened with Kerry Packer. Frank set it up. Kerry, against all expectation, made um, Australian Consolidated Press a massive, massive business. I think he's one of Australia's first billionaires. And James hasn't been able to build on that and, in fact, has wound back his business interests. Lachlan Murdoch may follow the same. You've got James Murdoch, who said he's left the business, and you've got Wendy Deng's children, who want to be part of it, apparently, maybe. We don't know what's true and what's not. But we may find that the business just breaks up. There's been a study done that shows that businesses have a natural lifespan and we may be heading to the end of that media model that when Rupert goes, and we don't wish death on anybody, but I'm talking about an inevitability here, when Rupert goes, the whole thing just may fall over anyway. And we can't underestimate that third generation issue. It did happen with Warwick Fairfax in the Fairfax Empire as well. That was some time ago. You mentioned before that it happened with the Packer Empire as well. There's there's always a strong possibility that the, the third generation factor will come into play for News Corporation, but it seems like it's dissipating by itself. It's still a very powerful influence in US politics and British politics and Australian politics, but it's almost like it's going through its own deterioration. So I'm just wondering, what is what is in this for Kevin Rudd? Is he settling old scores? Does he see a public interest issue here. Just wondering what's going on with Kevin Rudd and why is he taking this up at this particular point of time. Now, I do believe that it's a very important issue, but I'm just thinking, well, of course, he wouldn't have done it when he was Prime Minister. He left political office seven years ago. Why is he taking it up right now? I think Kevin has a strand of public interest to him. I also think, like most people who are ambitious enough to to become Prime Minister, I think he's got an ego that suggests that he can do it. I think you can say the same for Malcolm Turnbull. 
Kevin was essentially brought down by a media who has a lot of interest in coal. And I think Kevin has read a mood in the public. I think he's probably found himself with less to do in the pandemic (laughs) and has found a crusade that suits him. And, you know, certainly the settling of old scores. Labor, of course, is a party not renowned for its forgiveness and welcoming ways at its best. Let's let's be fair. Labor grudges and feuds last generations. Ask any old Labor person about Billy Hughes <laughs> or the DLP. We're talking a hundred and, and well seventy and one hundred years ago. The passion is still strong. I think Kevin is settling old scores, but I do think that he he does want to see a better polity because I think he sees, and I I agree with him here, that a a better parliament is a benefit to all Australians. And if parliament's not running in thrall to an unelected media body, we all benefit, even the unelected media bodies. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, Scott Morrison goes postal on Australia Post, but there's a lot more to the story. Senate estimates in Canberra usually brings up some very interesting material and last week it detected over-the-top bonuses given to four senior executives at Australia Post, exclusive Cartier watches at the cost of $5,000 each for a total of $20,000. Now, I'm a big fan of staff being given a box of chocolates or a fancy lunch to show appreciation for a job well done, but you know, these people are getting high salaries and you'd expect that senior executives should be doing their work to the highest level possible without these sorts of incentives. Australia Post is not government run, but it's an enterprise owned by government. But still, it was enough for Scott Morrison to fly off the handle. I was appalled. It's disgraceful. And it's not on. If she doesn't wish to do that, Mr Speaker, she can go. The head of Australia Post, Christine Holgate, she's been stood down for a four-week period and it's an inquiry instigated by Morrison and the media was very keen to let the public know how furious he was. But this is all a smokescreen and smokescreens have been a hallmark of Morrison's prime ministership. There's been pressure placed on Morrison about the creation of a National Corruption Commission. It was announced almost three years ago and there's pressure being brought upon him because of the revelations of the $30 million deal for land worth only $3 million in Western Sydney and the resurfacing of the sports rorts affair where over $100 million was handed out just before the 2019 federal election. There are continuing misappropriations of money going on elsewhere. The chair of the ASIC recently received $118,000 to cover his legal costs for tax advice. And that's not just for his tax bill, it's just for the tax advice provided to him. But Scott Morrison was very quiet about this, just making sure that all of his fury was directed towards Australia Post. 
We've mentioned this in previous episodes, but a National Corruption Commission is well overdue, and now the government is claiming that it has been delayed because of the coronavirus. US President Lyndon Johnson, he suggested that politicians should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, but this government hasn't even got out of its chair yet. (laughs) What very few people have seemed to pick up is that one of the things of the IPA And one of the things that the Trump government has done is the ultimate aim is to privatise Australia Post. Trump, of course, has undermined the American postal system by all kinds of allegations and uh, claims that aren't true. Same thing's happening here. Whether executive bonuses should be paid or not is one thing. You know, I think the postman who comes here every day and gets abused by me for delivering bills probably deserves a pay rise more than the executives. I think it's also fair to say something is not right when executives are paying themselves bonuses in a company that is not set up properly and has not made a profit and can't make a profit. And this is the whole thing. Certain public utilities shouldn't be run for profit. The postal service should be to deliver appropriate items to people who need them or to people who they've been sent to. And that's its sole aim. Does it cost us $100 million a year? Fine. That's a useful service. Education, law and order, health, infrastructure. We shouldn't be worried about making a profit from it because the things that come out of it make profit. And I think this is what they hate about it, that the profit gets spread not to a small elite, but to everybody. And when we look at the numbers involved, five Cartier watches, and those of us who uh, watch Connor says Cartier is not a real watch anyway, but that's a whole other issue, is nothing compared to the sale of land. I mean, Michael McCormack's ridiculous assertion, well, it'll be worth that much in the future. I've got a house here. If anyone wants to offer me $25 million for it, we can settle it today and do the four-week period. I'm very happy for that because it'll be worth that in the future. Well, that that sounds like a totally ridiculous situation, but that's exactly what Michael McCormack has been pushing. And within a lot of the media reporting, and this gets back to the way that the media reports on all of these issues, Michael McCormack, he comes out as an idiot within the media. It is reported. There's no question about that. But then it's all left behind. We never hear about it again. Whereas in previous years, if there's been any sort of commentary coming from the other side of politics along those lines, well, it runs for a couple of months. And this ties us back to the the media. We need open, smaller media. National media is good, but we should have four or five or... Better yet, an ABC that does national and then local papers, you know, a Sydney paper, a Melbourne paper. With the internet, we can read the news out of Melbourne, out of Adelaide, out of Perth, out of Uzbekistan if we want. And, you know, that's the great thing about the internet. We don't have to have it filtered through the political biases of one organisation. And everyone, there'll be people listening to saying, oh, but isn't that what you're doing? And of course it is. But we're a voice that should be mixed in with other voices of a reasonable political spectrum. 
Well, it does show that symbiotic relationship between this national government, the federal government and the media. Morrison has got key people within his office from News Corporation and Nine Media, and there are now key people in news management and editorial at the ABC. And, and these people are essentially taking on his media management. Just getting back to the Australia Post issue, now, whether senior executives re- receive a, a Cartier watch as a, as a bonus, you mentioned this, that $20,000 isn't a massive amount compared to the sports rorts, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation many, many years ago. But again, this smaller amount, Morrison appears in the media as the hero in this conversation. He's the one that's stamping out all of this rorting that's going on within Australia Post. It was mentioned at the Senate Estimates Committee last week, but these bonuses were actually provided two years ago in 2018. Here we have the media ramping up the conversation, totally ignoring all of this other large-scale corruption, but focusing on this issue within Australia Post, which, like, I I don't like the idea of senior executives receiving this $5,000 bonus, but it's not actually corruption. They're focused on Australia Post. This idea of Morrison appearing as the hero that will stop this corruption is going to call Australia Post to account, whereas everything else just gets left behind. He comes across as a strong man. He's all spin, all talk, no action. I wish I could say that that wasn't true. And I know people don't believe this, but it's true. He did that ridiculous photo shoot where he bought a inflatable Santa from Bunnings. Again, Bunnings. And I don't quite know what that was supposed to achieve, except I'll look at how much like you I really am, which in a way is a very elitist and exclusionary thing to present yourself as. Could you imagine a Paul Keating trying that? I've gone to Bunnings and bought an inflatable Santa or a John Howard, for that matter, you know. Or a Malcolm Turnbull, even. <laughs> I'm sure that they would have thought about it, but didn't actually try it out. No, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> so there's still a massive amount of resistance from the federal government to a national corruption commission. A, a few months ago, Liberal MPs Michael Suka and Kevin Andrews, they were accused of branch stacking and using taxpayer funding to launch these smear campaigns against their opponents. They were running these from their federal offices. We had a situation where the, the government decided to investigate this process. Instead of having an independent inquiry, they provided $50,000 to a law firm, Ashurst, and that just happens to be where Michael Sukar used to work. He was there for seven years. They employed Ashurst to carry out the inquiry, and they found nothing untoward, which is quite surprising. Now, in June this year, there were branch stacking allegations against Victoria Labor MP Adam Somirek, and we heard all about that a few months ago for, for a long, long time in the media, and he was sacked on the spot by Daniel Andrews. But can you imagine the uproar if Andrews set up an inquiry into Somirek at that time, paid $50,000 to a union-friendly law firm to investigate him? It, it would still be front-page news of the Herald Sun. And the, the issue with Sukar and Andrews in Victoria, Kevin Andrews, that is, we have, now have a situation where obvious corruption is being normalised, it's reported on a low-level basis within, within the media. So we, we all hear about it, but it's not amplified at all. It soon gets forgotten about. And it's the conservative side of politics that is the one that's continuously getting away with it without any sanctions or repercussions at all. I can't help but feel that there's a change coming. I think Kevin Rudd has opened a flood pipe of anger in the community in in a positive way in that he's tapped into it and has anger and, and, and has opened it. 
I think the pandemic has shown that the system as we knew it is a failed system. I don't think we can carry on the way we have. Whether the system tightens up and gets worse to respond to this or whether things change for the better, I don't know. Obviously, I'm hoping things change for the better, but nothing is predictable anymore. The old chess games you used to play in your head make no sense because all the rules have changed. I think that we're seeing the whole system start to fall apart. Almost all of our program today has been about corruption and the obvious fall in standards in political behaviour. And there are a few MPs and, and also a few Liberal MPs that listen into our podcast, but there's a, there's a strong message in this for Labor. If they weave the message of corruption into every political conversation until the next election and keep talking about corruption until everyone is absolutely sick of it, then their, their job will be done. But Anthony Albanese keeps mentioning that he doesn't want to be like Tony Abbott, like an oppositional sort of opposition leader. But for three long years, up until 2013, Abbott used to weave the message of the carbon tax into virtually every conversation, whether he was making an announcement on health, on childcare, education or whatever, he'd always navigate and direct the conversation towards a carbon tax. And most of it was made up garbage, but it was politically effective. Albanese, he is on the back foot here. Soon after he became the opposition leader, he did claim that for all of his years in Canberra, he'd never seen any evidence of corruption in politics. But my thinking is, well, he better change this message and start talking up corruption in Canberra because it's obvious to most people that it's taking place everywhere within this government. So, firstly, I'm, I'm sure Anthony himself has never been involved in corruption. But us as outsiders have seen it. So it, it was a careless thing to say, I think. I think, too, at the moment, you have to assume that every institution is corrupt or prone to corruption. And I think, too, you have to watch out for it, not just on the other side, but on your side. And the other thing I'll say, and I said this earlier too, I don't believe that every Liberal Party member is corrupt. And I'm fairly certain that those who aren't uh, are working against a system that's rigged against them to try and clean things up. And I thoroughly encourage that and would support any candidate of any party genuinely going after corruption, even the candidates I thoroughly disagree with on other things. <laughs> But, you know, it's a really important issue. It's, it's how states fail. A state is only as good as the integrity of its institutions. And that's not just parliament, that's its public service. One of the, the things with Daryl Maguire was that he was uh, getting cash for visas. I speak to quite a few people who want to be nationals here just in my daily life. And the pressure that they feel to get the visa and the, the hoops they have to jump through to, to get a permanent residence visa or to get a student visa or to get what whatever. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of strain. It's a lot of pressure. You can stumble for reasons that you didn't know you could stumble for. And here's Daryl Maguire going to the Minister for Immigration with a list of names and a pack of cash, apparently. You're only as good as your institutions, which is why we've got to clean this out. So I'm hoping that both sides, the honest members of both sides, will get together and, and sort this out. That's it for this new politics podcast. 
And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.